It's a wonderful, powerful, short book, but has quite a lot in it, a lot of truth that we're trying to squeeze out as much as we can. The series that we've been going through is For His Glory and For Our Benefit. And just like communion glorifies God and benefits His people, so does First John. So do the truths we're learning in First John. God is glorified and we are benefited. We're in First John chapter 5 today. The lesson is going to be called Securing Victory. Securing Victory. We're going to be in First John 5, verses 1 to 4. If you don't have a Bible or you need a Bible, we have some Bibles in the back bookshelf there. Uh, the same st- uh, version we're using to teach from, it's the English Standard Version. You are more than willing to, uh, more than welcome to take one of those Bibles and even keep those Bibles if you want. Um, we have two Bibles. There's a smaller print and a larger print. If you're using these Bibles, we're going to be in page 961 of the smaller print and in the bigger print, 1213. 961 in the smaller print and 1213 in the larger print, securing victory is where we're going today. Before we get there, think back about your life or your experience with sports. What would you say is the greatest upset victory of all time? Think about it just for a moment. In your own life or in the sports world, what would you say is the greatest upset victory of all time? Patriots? Which one? Against the Falcons? Okay. Well, I'm going to share with you, I'm going to be very transparent with you today. I'm going to share with you 10 upset victories in my own life, okay? Upset victories, things that I shouldn't have won that I did win, and it's because I had an upset. Number one is I've never fallen to my death. Let me explain that. On a regular basis, I stand in the shower with soapy feet on a slick surface with my eyes closed, and I've yet to fall to my death. That's, that's an upset. That's an upset victory. I consider that an upset. Here's number two. I've never had internal bleeding. I let all of my kids bounce on my stomach while I lie on the floor. (laughs) To my knowledge, no internal bleeding. That's amazing. Upset victory. Number three, we've never had a request to host a TV show. We have eight kids ages 11 and under, and no one has ever asked us to be the next freak show on TV. It hasn't happened. (laughs) Still could happen. The call may be coming. But it hasn't happened yet. Maybe they haven't found us yet. Number four greatest upset is coming out alive every spring. The amount of germs that enter into the Walker household from September till April has enough power to kill all the remaining moose. All two of them. And somehow we survive. We come out in spring, still alive. In fact, half of our family is sick this morning. So that's an upset victory. Here's number five. I have never been tied up with rope. It's been never happened. I have eight kids who I constantly, regularly disappoint. And I expected my life to be in greater danger by now. I really didn't. But I've never been tied up with rope. Number six is I still have all my fingers. Did you know every week I chop up those little notes that you're holding with a massive, large paper cutter? And I've never come in like this. There's still time, still time, but it hasn't happened yet. That's an upset victory. Number seven, my wife does not hate me. That I know, my wife does not hate me. Now she's not here today, so that's a little bit of a message. No, my wife does not hate me. She has changed probably 300,000 more diapers than I have because I always seem to be busy. And she still doesn't hate me. Here's another upset victory that I'm not 400 pounds because I should be. Because I really like banana graham cracker pie. I mean, I really like banana graham cracker pie. 
and somehow I've, I'm not a large man. Number nine is my church has never thrown tomatoes at me. That's amazing. That's an upset victory because, as you know, my icebreakers are a little bit of an acquired taste. And not once have I gotten a tomato right in the face. So thank you for that. Number 10 is a little weird, but it's true. It's a surprise. It's a victory that I don't preach with a puppet. Because at home I do. And you'd be surprised how good I am in my puppet skills. Have I been tempted? No, I haven't. The puppet will not enter the pulpit, but um, 10 surprising upset victories. Well, there's one that's going to transition us into our lesson today. It's that all of us can say this, that by God's strength, we can conquer evil. Amen? And that's an upset victory. If you have your Bibles, join me in 1 John chapter 5. We're going to be, read verses 1 to 4. 1 John 5, 1 to 4. Continue to make this a practice as we go through 1 John. We have about a month left of our 1 John study if you haven't done this already, take time to read through 1 John once a week. I believe that's going to be beneficial for your soul. Here's what John says in 1 John 5, verses 1. He says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. That's where we're headed today. I've told you and reminded you along the way to con continue to keep the passage we're studying in the context of the entire book of 1 John. So we're going to do that a little bit right now. We're going to remember the verses John just told us last week because it's going to support our verses this week. Last week we talked about love emphasized. And in verses 19 to 21 of chapter 4, John said this. He says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, not, whom he has seen, excuse me, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Our three-point outline, if you have your sheets, this is where we're going today. Number one is proof of divine birth. Number two, proof, proof of divine love. And number three, proof of divine victory. That's where we're headed today. Let's talk about this, proof of divine birth. Because that's important. That's what we talked about a little bit at communion. We talked about how we get to be the family of God, the children of God. And that should, that should amaze us still, even when we think about it. That concept should amaze us. Most of you, I should say probably all of you, have one of these or should have one of these. It's called a birth certificate. Does anyone know who, where's their, where theirs is? Like locked up in a safe somewhere, somewhere kept safe? Yeah. We have a lot of birth certificates to keep track of. That's a big file. But my birth certificate is there. I'm just going to fill this out so you guys have a little bit of understanding. My name is Todd, as most of you know. What's my middle name? Does anyone know my middle name? Haddon? No. It is one of my kids, though. Marcus. Todd Marcus Walker. I think I was, how, where's my mom? She's not here. She's upstairs with the kids. I was something about seven pounds, five ounces, something like that. I was born on the 29th, 29th day of, anyone know the month? December. Good job. December. To my father, Mel, and you know my mom, Peggy. In the year of 19, any guesses? 20? <laughs> it's the hair, isn't it? Who, who, what was, 
What did you say, 95? 85. 85 is a good guess. 80, even closer. 79, three days before the 80s. So I lived every moment of the 80s. That's a pretty cool thing. And I was born in the 70s and I came out with an Afro. So that was pretty cool. But birth certificates are important. In fact, if you remember in our culture, this was important a few years ago, wasn't it? Um, I'm not gonna make a political statement about this today, but I remember this being all over the news about when President Obama had to validate his birth certificate because that was a pretty important thing, if you remember that, to validate that our president was American. You guys remember that being going, yeah, that's kind of a big deal to know that our president is American. Not only is it a law, but we don't want anyone who's running our country to have divided interests. So I remember that being a big deal and all over the news that we had to figure out, was he an American? Because that's a pretty big deal, detail. Did I just lose my mic, guys? Am I back? Sorry. <laughs> Okay, I'll just shout at you for the next minute. You guys let me know when I should stop shouting, okay? All right, am I back on? All right, good to go. But remember that was a big deal, and again, I'm not making a political statement. I just thought that was an interesting setup for what John is talking about today. Because most of us would claim that we belong to God. We belong to God. We call God our heavenly Father, do we not? But the question for all of us today is, do you and can you validate it? That's a pretty important thing, isn't it? To not only claim that you belong to God, but to be able to validate that you belong to God. Well, John's going to handle that. He's going to talk about how important that is. I've told you before, I've used this as illustration before, but when we go into the hospital to have our children, they do this little bracelet system, which I think is a good system. They give the baby a little bracelet, and they give the mom and the dad a bracelet because the bracelets are supposed to match each other. So that you can't just walk out with any random baby going, this is my baby. You have to validate that it is your baby by the little codes matching up. And I think that's a pretty good system. And this happens spiritually as well. God validates that we belong to him and we validate that he is our father. And we don't have to guess at that. We don't have to round up. We can know for sure, for certain, that God is not only the almighty God who watches over this world, but we call him our father. That's an amazing thing to validate. And John's going to hit us straight in the mouth with us today. He says, listen, everyone, notice it. Everyone. Everyone. Now, there's a condition there, isn't it? Everyone who believes. Believes what? Believes in God? Believes in religion? Believes in Christianity? Believes there's a heaven? believes we're not alone, well, all of that is good, but there's something even more important than that, because John says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That's your validation. That's your spiritual birth certificate. That you say that I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, you don't have to fill out a physical, or excuse me, a physical version of your spiritual birth certificate because that's something that happens internally. We use this concept of baptism. If you guys have been baptized, you understand what that is. Baptism is you get lowered into the water and it symbolizes death, burial, and resurrection, meaning new birth and new life with Jesus Christ. But thankfully, there's an inward baptism that takes place as soon as you believe in Jesus. As soon as you believe in Jesus, just as we celebrated in communion, your sins are washed clean. You're saved. You're brought into the family of God. And that's a really amazing reality. 
that we have a spiritual birth certificate in the eyes of God. Now, maybe you know when yours was. Maybe you remember the moment that you trusted in Christ. And maybe it's a little foggy. Maybe you're not entirely sure that you can pinpoint an exact moment or day. But it's for sure that you believe. You know it inside and you know it because it practically works out in your life. Because it will. It always will. When you believe in Jesus, when you believe that he is the Christ, it will evidence itself in how you live. So all of us who believe in Jesus Christ have a spiritual birth certificate. I trusted in Christ when I was five. Pretty young. But God has made it that way, designed it that way, so that anyone and anyone who believes can be saved. And that's what John says. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Doesn't that seem like that should be harder? I mean, to be born of God, to be God's child, that seems like that should be a rigorous test that we should have to take in order to pass that. God made that very, very simple. In fact, I remember struggling with this, and I know there's a, there's a hot debate out there in Christian circles whether this is actually what it is or not. And it's called easy believism. Easy believism is basically the theory that those who believe, just like we talked about, can be saved. Anyone who believes, just as John said, can believe. And there's some out there who struggle with this concept. In fact, I will say that I struggled with this for many years because I look into the scripture and I see things like count the cost. And I see things like narrow road. And I see things like follow Jesus and obey Jesus. And you wonder sometimes going, can it really be so simple as to believe in Jesus and you find your spiritual birth with God? And I remember wrestling with that going, can that really be the case? But I want to take you on a short little journey and prove to you today that not only is the case, but it's very, very clear in Scripture. John has already told us everyone who believes, notice it, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has born of God. And aren't you thankful that God can't lie? Aren't you thankful God can't break a promise? If God declares it and God promises it, it is true. We could take this verse at face value. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, and that's important, we'll talk about why that is, has been born of God. In John 3.16, the most famous verse in the entire Bible says something very similar, interestingly enough, written by the same man. In John chapter 3, John again writing said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's saying the same thing as John has said here in 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes has been born of God. Everyone who believes has eternal life with God. But what do you have to believe? That Jesus Christ existed? That he's an historical figure? No. You have to believe that he's the Savior. You have to believe that he's the Christ. You have to believe that Jesus is the Messiah bar none. There are no others. In Romans 10, Paul puts it, Paul puts it this way. This is another famous passage about the gospel. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, notice it, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you notice how a young child can do that? And many young children do this. They confess that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Lord, and that they believe that on the third day after he died, God raised him from the grave. I remember as a five-year-old understanding that and saying, I don't understand a lot about God, but I can understand that Jesus came to this earth to die for me. I believe that he is the Christ, the Savior, and that there is no other. And I believe that was the day that I was saved. He says, for the, with the heart one is, believes and is justified, and with the, one, with the mouth 
one confesses and is saved. And so we kind of find this as a pattern and theme in the scriptures, that it comes down, your, your faith, your beginnings of your faith, boils down to one truth, that Jesus is the Christ. In fact, if you humor me, it's right in the word, isn't it? Christian, it's right there. If you simply focus on the word, you notice that Christ is right in the word of what we call ourselves to be. We're not saying that the Christ is going to come. We say, we declare that the Christ has come. And that Jesus of, of Nazareth is that Christ. That he was born in Bethlehem. That he died in Golgotha. Three days later, he rose from the grave and he ascended back to the Father 40 days later. We say that and we believe that in our hearts. And we confess that with our mouths. And to John, he's re reiterating today that we are born of God if we believe that one thing, that Jesus is the Messiah. And this word Messiah is the same word for Christ. And again, the question for you today is, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Because that is a big thing to state. It's not a small thing to state. Because when you say that Jesus is the Christ, you are excluding any other saviors. Did you know that? Because you notice this word right here? The Christ. Not a Christ, not a possibility. Now you have yours, I have mine. When you say that Jesus is the Christ, you draw a line. And you say that he is the chosen one, he is the Messiah, and there is no other. And that's a big thing for someone to state. According to John, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Take it to the bank. You may not know exactly when you believed. You may not know exactly when the first time is that you realized that. But if you believe that here today, if you confess with your mouth that today, you are saved. You are the child of God. And I want you to be comforted by that today. That God has made it so simple. It's called low-hanging fruit. So that anyone, a child, can come up and take that fruit simply by believing. Now that's not the entire embodiment of the Christian life, is it? Because the Christian life, as we're going to explore here, is much harder than that. But the simple childlike faith of saying that I believe that Jesus is the Christ is what enters you into the family of God, and that's a beautiful thing that God has made. I want you to notice this phrase too, because this is at the end of the verse. He says, And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And we've talked about this already, and John's going to make this a sort of a pattern of his book, is that we must love those in our family. Just like we celebrated communion here together and we're celebrating and worshiping here together, listening to the word of God together, God's also made it that way. There's no Lone Ranger Christian out there, is there? You're either a Christian with the church or you have none of it because God has set it up that way. Whoever loves the Father must love those who have been born of him. And the church is sort of an odd entity to us, isn't it? Because it's sort of a hodgepodge of a bunch of different people and backgrounds and and perspectives, and some people arrive to Christianity when they're really young, some people arrive when they're much later in life. And we look around the church and go, really? God, this is how you're going to do it? With these people sitting here today, I mean, really, you're going to take us and defeat the devil and conquer evil with? It's not the strategy I would use, God. To which God always says, I'm thankful you're not God, Todd. <laughs> Your strategy would not be good. But that's how God has designed it. That not only do we believe in God and, and enter into the family of God, but that family unit is going to be crucial for our following Jesus Christ. In fact, I'll even say it this way. Without the church, it's impossible. It's impossible to follow Christ the way Christ expects because he's designed it that way. The two are connected. The two are linked. 
If you say that you love God and you believe that within your heart, there should be a massive equal sign saying, I love the church also. It doesn't mean it's not a challenge, because it is. Loving the church can be a very challenging thing, but to say you love God equates to you saying you love the church because they're so connected, they're so intertwined, and God has made it that way. And John wants to know that if you believe in God, then you're saved, and you're a child of God. And when you're a child of God, you love all other children of God. At least you should. Now, you guys ever had a family reunion? Yeah, they are awesome. But generally what happens with a family reunion is there's, there's a couple stragglers, right? A couple of people who show up that you're like, really? Are you in the family? Um, because they don't stay in touch with anybody, right? They're, 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 not, they're not easy to get. You know, they're kind of hard to know where they live and what they're doing in their life. They're kind of off the radar. And then suddenly every five or ten years you have one of these family reunions and, and somebody shows up. And I don't know this family, okay? But I'm going to guess it's this guy right here. <laughs> I'm just guessing. You look at that guy and go, is, is that Uncle Skip? Is, is he still around? And going... <laughs> And we, we, every, I think every family has one or two of those people that you're, they just kind of show up and pop off the radar and you're going, well, if, if you're part of this family, then why don't we feel it? Why don't we sense it? Why, why don't you stay in touch? Why don't, when there's a big important need, why don't you show up to it? Why don't, why don't we know you and you know us? And that sadly happens in the church as well, doesn't it? The church is supposed to be connected and unified in our goals and we're supposed to be together a lot. And sometimes that can be challenging. But sadly, this happens too, is people like to show up on the Christmas and the Easter's and when Jesus comes back and go, I'm in, I'm here, I've been here all along. And you're like, really? Because I, I didn't see you much, I didn't talk to you much. And, and, and that's a sad reality when that happens because God did not make it that way. God made it that if you care about God, if you care about Jesus Christ, you care about the church. You've invested in the church, you've given your talents and your time and your monies and your energy to the church because when you do that, you give it all to God. That's the way that we give our offerings to God is we give them through his church. That's how God has designed it. We're going to have four we wouldn't statements today. These aren't really on your notes, but I think this is kind of what John is saying as we walk through these things. Number one, he's saying we wouldn't claim that Jesus is the Christ unless our spiritual eyes have been opened. And no one does. Did you know that? No one claims that Jesus is the Christ and believes it within their heart unless God has done a work within their soul. Because that's such a large thing to say. When you say that, you cut off every other religion, every other theory about God, every other version of spirituality gets cut off when you say that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Savior of the world. He is God's only begotten Son, and He came his body was broken. His blood was spilled so that we could have a relationship with God. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus drew that line, didn't he? He didn't say, hey, listen, I'm an option. He said, I am the Christ, and there is no other. And I need you to know that because I need you to sink your teeth into that truth to say, Jesus, we must follow you then. Not anything, not anybody that sounds good, but the one true Christ. And the only reason you would do that, the only reason you would do that is because your spiritual eyes have been opened to see him. And I think of all those parallels in scripture when Jesus actually healed blind people. Do you remember that? People who had been blind from birth and he's like, listen, rub this mud on your eyes and go wash it off. 
And then for the first time, the scales fell off their eyes and they saw. I mean, can you imagine that being blind your whole life and you get to like my age and all of a sudden one day you see everything? I mean, wouldn't that be a wild experience here in New Hampshire? To go from hearing about mountains and moose and then one, one day you see them, maybe not the moose, but you see the mountains and the beauty of God's nature and you go, wow, look how beautiful it is. That must have been a wild scene. But you know what's more profound when that happens spiritually? Because I remember when that happened in my life. I remember when the scales fell off my eyes and I said in my soul, in my mouth, you're the Christ, Jesus, and I will give my life to you. I will follow you and no one else. If you can say that, you have spiritual life residing within you and coursing through your veins. One of the coolest stories of this happening is the centurion when Jesus is actually dying on the cross. Do you remember this? This is one of the guys who was responsible for getting him up on that cross. And he's witnessing everything. He's witnessing the whole testimony. He's witnessing Jesus not defend himself. He's witnessing the sky going dark in the middle of the day. He's witnessing the, the things that come out of Jesus' mouth and his demeanor. He's witnessing the power of God happening that day as Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. And he stands there looking up at the cross and this is what comes out of his mouth. Truly, you are the Son of God. That's a powerful thing. The scales fell off that man's eyes and he said, he's the Christ. What are we doing? He's the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And that's happened to every single person who's believed. Every single person who's believed has had that moment, that revelation that Jesus, you are the Christ. That's proof of divine birth. Let's now talk about proof of, proof of divine love. If you've been married or you're getting married, then this is a common custom in our culture, is that we express our love and commitment through a ring, an engagement ring. And I remember when I gave that to my, my soon-to-be wife in 2008, uh, Janine and I got engaged in Michigan. And I remember trying to pick out the most special ring that I could afford so that I could give her that ring one day and hopefully she'd say yes. And we'd get married and I would show her my love. And I remember spending so much time in that process of thinking about what ring I should get her. I went to like 12 different jewelry stores and bothered the women for hours. Um, but I wanted it to be special because that was the, the symbol of my love and commitment to Janine. That I was going to give her a ring and I was going to ask her to marry me. And that's a cool thing that we have in our culture. John says in verse 2 of chapter 5, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Don't you want to give something to God? Don't you want to give an offering to God, something that God accepts, something that God is delighted in? I do. I want to be able to say to God, just like I get from my kids at Christmas or my wife at Christmas, I want to be able to say to God, God, I have something for you. And it's something from my heart. It's something from my soul. It's something that I think you'll cherish. It's something that you want. And gladly, God tells us what he wants, just like my wife did when she got me started on the ring process. She gave me a starting point. I said, Todd, don't get this kind. Get this kind over here. And that was helpful because I may have gotten that other kind. What happens here sometimes in, in Christianity is, is another sad thing. Um, that sometimes we try to love God, but we love him the wrong way. I'm going to use this little picture as an illustration over here that I used last time. Now, we're going we're to change this picture into something good, okay? He's not shooting anything bad. But we're going to change this as, as love, the object of love. And we're going to make one of these God and one of these the church. 
And sadly, what's happening today is there's people who want to love God, so they're, they're trying to do this. They're trying to right, go right over the church, right over what God told us to do by keeping his commandments and loving one another, saying, God, I do love you. It's not you I have the problem with, God. You and I were on great terms. Church, though, I don't know, God. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of weird people. That's a lot of things I don't really want to do. But I still love you, God. And uh, I just want you to know that my love is directly headed your way, to which God tells us again today, it's not possible. It's not possible. No one's ever done it that way. Nobody's ever loved God without coming directly through the church. And God set it up that way. We don't get to love God and neglect his family. We don't get to love God and hate his family. We don't get to love God and backbite and slander his family. The two don't work. Whatever we give to the church is what we give to God. So if you want to love God, you will keep his commandments. And at the top of that list is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And guess what? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And the two are linked. The two are intertwined. Here's our second we wouldn't statement. We would not love the children of God, the church, unless we desired to love Jesus. I really believe that. There are many groups that you can belong to, many things you could spend your time doing. Why are you here? Why this one? There's so many things that you can give your time to, so many clubs, so many communities out there. Why the church? Why are you here giving your time and commitment and energy and focus and money to God's church? And I think the only conclusion is that you love Jesus. You love Jesus. Why else would you be here? Why else would you say yes to his church? Because it, the church can be hard. The church can be full of difficult people. The church sometimes can even let us down. But God wants it that way, doesn't he? God has said, if you want to love me, love my people. And I think that's a beautiful thing that God has set up. So we see this all over scripture that... We're not supposed to just go to church, right? We just go and check it off and go, I did my church thing today. No, we're supposed to be the church. It's supposed to be a part of us. It's supposed to be what we live for and breathe for and serve. And I know what it's like. Trust me, I'm a pastor. You're supposed to say that, Pastor Todd. You're the pastor. You guys remember that math teacher growing up that thought the whole world revolved around math? And you're like, dude, I have history and social studies and gym class and then stuff outside of school that I really care about. Not everything revolves around math. So when you hear pastors say that thing, you're nodding, going, yeah, of course you should say that. You've given yourself to serve the church. But for the rest of us, church is a side dish. It's not, though, is it? Or it shouldn't be. Because God has set it up that if you want to commit yourself to Jesus Christ, if you want to validate that you belong to Christ, you will be the church. You must. On the last day, that's going to be your spiritual birth certificate before the Lord. Not your confession only, but how did you love my people? Because how you love my people is how you loved me. Jesus said that exact thing. And this is what makes sense of some of the word of God. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul speaking, he said, Whatever you do, anything, literally anything, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Or maybe the better way of saying that is not for men primarily. It doesn't mean we shouldn't love people. We should love people for who they are. I love my church for who you guys are. And the more I get to know you people, the more I love you people. That's, that's earnest. That's honest. But I'll also be honest. I don't love you primarily for you. 
I love you primarily because I want to love Jesus. I don't serve in my role primarily for men to benefit men. I do it primarily to glorify Jesus. And thankfully, that's another equation that God gave us to say, listen, sometimes people won't be lovable. They won't be easy to love. You won't want to. They will have hurt you. They will have let you down. You'll look at them and go, you know what, buddy? Sometime later down the road, but you've got a lot of things to fix before I love you again. And that's when God says to us, don't love them for their sake. Love them for my sake. My mom used to say this. She used to say, when I see someone hard, I try to picture Jesus' face. And I think that's a good way to put it. Is that if we're doing it for men, we're always going to fall short of motivation, aren't we? We're always going to fall short of reasons to coming to the church and investing our time in the church because the church is full of failing, frail, fragile, inconsistent people. And they don't always deserve and demand our love. But guess who does always deserve and demand our love? The Lord Jesus Christ. And when we work and when we serve and when we love, we do it primarily for him because all the motivations flow from I love you, Jesus, because you first loved me. So John says in verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Thankfully, God doesn't keep us guessing and doesn't say, listen, whatever you want to get me, get me. I'll love anything you give me. I'll cherish anything you want to give me. He says, listen, if you want to love me, do what I've told you to do. Do the things that I've declared that are really important to me. And guess what happens? His commandments are not burdensome. And I love that about God. Now I'm going to use an illustration again. I'm re reusing them on reruns here, and that screen didn't come up. There we go. I'm going to use some reruns here today. I've used this one already, but uh, I want you to picture yourself as a young kid, boy or girl, with your mother, you know, five, ten years old, but it doesn't matter. And your mother decides one day that you need to clean up your room because your room kind of looks like this, which happens a lot when you're a kid. And so she says something like, I'm going to go run to the store, and I want you to clean your room. It's a disaster area. Moms love using that phrase for some reason. I want you to clean up your room while I'm gone. When I get back, I want to see that your room is clean. One simple task and chore. Clean your room. And you hear it, and you listen to your mom, but you also know the state of your room. And you're not thrilled by that commandment. But you also want to love your mom because your mom is sweet and special to you. So while she's gone at the store getting the groceries, you decide to give her something. And so you sit down and you write a lovely note to your mom telling her all the great things about her all the things you love about her, all, how great she is, how pretty she is. And, go, and you write this note and you set it up on the kitchen so that she'll see it as soon as she gets home. And she gets home with bags of groceries, sets the groceries down, and she sees this little love note sitting there on the counter for her. And she picks it up and reads it, and it says something like this, Dear Mom, I love you to the moon and back. And she's touched. That her child would sit down and write a little card for her, a little note for her, about how much they love them. But then she does something. She walks down to your room. She opens the door, and that's how it looks. Exactly the way it looked before. <laughs> Do you think that changes the weight of those words in that note? I think it does. When your mom gave you one simple task to complete, and you said, I don't want to do that, but I'm going to choose something a little bit easier. Well, God has given us a bunch of commandments, hasn't he? He's given us commandments, and he's told us, Verbatim, if you love me, obey my commandments. It doesn't mean worship isn't good. It doesn't mean offerings of love 
to God outside of that aren't good, they are good, but they better have stemmed from what he told us to do. But this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And we've talked a lot about this concept through the book of First John, is what, First John is what are these commandments and how do we obey them? And thankfully, God has boiled it down to two, which we're going to get back here in a minute. But I love this phrase that John brings up. He says, and his commandments are not burdensome. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's commandments are not burdensome? Or does it sometimes feel like this? I'll be honest. Sometimes that's how I feel. Feels like I'm pushing a huge rock up a massive cliff and my legs are weak, my back is weak, my spirit is weak and I want to let go. And I want to stop pushing. And then I hear John say, quoting Jesus, my commandments are not burdensome. So one of us is wrong. Either God is wrong and he's using hyperbole to trap me or I'm wrong and his commandments aren't burdensome. So which is it? Well, typically when there's one person wrong and it's God and us, it's usually us. In fact, it's always us. In Matthew 11, Jesus said this, and I think this is a beautiful promise. He said, take my yoke upon you. That's a word we need to understand. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lonely in heart for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, I've been in ministry for going on 16 years and uh, the way I would describe it is not easy and light. I'm going to be honest. I would not describe ministry, full-time ministry as easy and light. But Jesus says, take my yoke. Now, you guys know what a yoke is? You guys have an understanding of what a yoke is? It's not talking about an egg, okay? Because sometimes you think that. That's Y-O-L-K. But a yoke is something you put around oxen to, to make them go in the right direction to plow a field, right? It's not, it's not something I've ever seen and I've ever used. But I want to focus on this phrase because Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And sometimes it doesn't feel light. It doesn't feel easy. Well, we have one of the biggest mountains this side of the Mississippi right in our backyard, don't we? Mount Washington. I think it's the third highest peak or something like that, this side of the Mississippi. It's a big monster of a mountain, isn't it? Anyone ever hiked up Mount Washington? Would you consider it to be light and easy? Okay. <laughs> Would you consider someone who's not an avid hiker to go right up Mount Washington as their first hiking experience? Probably not, right? Because that wouldn't feel light and easy, would it? Because it's 6,288 feet of hiking. Your calves would be on fire, your abs would be on fire, your spirit would be weak, and you'd want to go, I don't ever want to do this again. Where's the cog? Where's, where's the auto road? Take me up that way next time. But it's all perspective, isn't it? Mount Washington is hard. It's a hard climb. It's a really hard climb because it's 6,288 feet. But Mount Everest is 29,035 feet. Now, if I asked you, is Mount Washington an easy hike? You would say, no, absolutely not. If I said, compared to Mount Everest, is Mount Washington an easy hike? You'd go, oh yeah, oh yeah. I'll go up Mount Washington any day of the week as long as they don't have to go Mount Everest. Now, Mount Everest, Mount Washington is 6,000 some feet. Looks like something like that compared to Mount Everest. In fact, the base camp of Mount Everest, and I don't know where the base camp is exactly, but it's 17,500 feet just to get to base camp. That's more than two Mount Washingtons just to get to the base camp of Mount Everest. And you haven't even climbed yet. You haven't even scaled Mount Everest. Now, Mount Everest 
would what we'd be considered as a very, very hard, in fact, probably the hardest hike of all times, climb, mountain climb of all times. And that's how I sort of think we understand this concept of what Jesus is talking about. Because it was Jesus' words, and it sounds a little bit like he's contradicting himself, because John says, they're not burdensome. And then Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And then you find Jesus in Matthew 7 saying something like this. He says, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many who take that path. But the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Well, we just found a contradiction in the Bible, didn't we? Jesus says, my yoke is easy. And in Matthew 7, he said, the road in the narrow gate are hard. So what do we do with that? Well, that's why we need to understand the entire counsel of God. Because Jesus is right on both accounts. It's a light yoke and an easy yoke, and it's also a narrow and hard road. And I think the way we understand this is by contrast. Because the word of God is the one who helps us understand this contrast. In Galatians chapter 3, it's talking about the law. I don't know if you can see that up there. Maybe I should zoom in. This sometimes doesn't go well, though. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul writing, he says, Listen, all who rely on works of the law... I can't see that, can you? <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. Come on. Come back to me. Let's try that. Is that better? Okay. All who rely on works of the law are under... A curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In the Old Testament, someone did the math. There are around 613 commandments in the Old Law. And Paul is telling us in Galatians 3, if you fail once, in one moment, in one aspect of the law, you're under a curse. Curse. This is the word of God telling us this. That the old law had to be obeyed perfectly for it to benefit you. And then in Romans chapter 6, Paul speaking, says the wages of sin is death. Do you notice something here? Do you notice the contrast? On one side, the law, it brings a curse because no one can obey it perfectly. No one except Jesus. And on the other side, our sin, the wages of that is death. And it doesn't mean physical death because we'll all physically die. It means spiritual, eternal death. Do you start to see what Jesus is saying? There's another yoke out there, isn't there? There's a yoke of the law and there's a yoke of the sin that that law produces. And uh, I found a picture of a yoke around two cows and... This is kind of how people look when they're under the law and sin. <laughs> because they're devastating. They're not only hard, they're impossible. If you're under the law, the Old Testament law, trying to live by the Old Testament law, you're cursed because as soon as you fail, it's over. If you're in your sin and enslaved to your sin in which is against God every part of it, you're awaiting condemnation for that sin. Now, we've compared Mount Washington and Mount Everest. I would definitely want to climb Mount Washington compared to Mount Everest. And Jesus is helping us understand something today. That following Jesus is a breath of fresh air. If you understand the law and you understand your sin. Following Jesus is hard. 
but nothing when compared to the law and nothing when compared to our sin. When we follow Jesus, the yoke is easy and the burden is light. Yes, the road is narrow. Yes, it's difficult. It's costly. It will require your whole life to follow Jesus Christ. It will require everything that you have to give. But what I love about the Word of God is that He doesn't complicate things for us. He says, when you talk about following Jesus Christ, I'm going to boil it down to two great commandments. And they're one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Jesus said, all the law and the prophets hang upon these two commandments. Two. Two. Not 613, that one, 613 commandments, that one, one misstep, the whole thing is ruined. Two commandments that you have to abide by as a practice and pattern of your life. And when you do this, you are clearly following Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, he means it. Because not only is it following Jesus under two great commandments instead of the law, and instead of being enslaved to your sin, not only is it two overarching commandments, but Jesus goes with us, doesn't he? Jesus walks with us. The climb, the hard climb that he expects us to make, he says, I will go with you. And I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Every step you take, I'll be right there. Every step I expect you to take, I will go before you. I will go with you. You can make it because I will help you. Do you notice how the yoke is easy and the burden is light when you look at it from that angle? Where before you go, man, Christianity sounds miserable. I don't want to follow Christ and give up all these fun things. Well, then your other options are the law or your sin. Those are the only other options. The law brings a curse and your sin brings eternal death. Our, th our third we wouldn't statement, obey we would not obey Jesus Christ unless we believed that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one would line up behind Jesus Christ unless they believe that he is the Christ and that his commandments are the way to life. And thankfully, I believe many in this room have said that, that Jesus is worth following. Do you believe that? Do you believe that, that Jesus is worth following? Sure, it's hard. Sure, it's costly. Sure, it's a narrow road. Jesus told us that, but it's worth it. In fact, I'll say it this way. Following Jesus Christ is an eternal bargain. What do we suffer in this life? 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years of following Jesus on a narrow road. What is the advantage? Eternal life, joy, peace, and security with the Almighty God who created you. Now, that's a bargain, guys. That is a bargain. And it just depends what angle you look at it from. If you look at it from the proper angle that Jesus wants us to look at, following Jesus is light, easy, and a bargain. And I believe that it is. Quickly, we've got to talk about the proof of divine victory because that is the whole point of this lesson. Now, you guys remember, we brought this up already, but you remember that blowout victory the Falcons had over the Patriots? What year was that? 2000. 18, something like that. I don't remember what year it was, but what a blowout victory. It was an embarrassing game for the Patriots. I'm watching that game, just watching them get, you know, trounced by the Falcons and going, boy, what a blowout. I'm going to turn this TV off. In fact, I did turn the TV off. But wow, what a, what a loss for the Patriots. Is that how you remember it? Is that how you guys remember it? It was a total dominating victory for the Falcons over the Patriots, or was that only three and some quarters? <laughs> And I can only say these things here in New England. Other places would throw tomatoes at me. But what happened in that victory, in that game? Well, the Patriots storm back, and they end up 
the Falcons don't score one more point, and the Patriots end up winning 34-28 in overtime. And it's one of the greatest comeback victories of all time. And I remember watching that game turn around going, boy, this is not how this game started at all. Does Christianity feel that way sometimes? Doesn't it seem that way in the media reports? That Christianity is losing? Christians are losing? Well, according to the numbers even that I found online, they're saying that it is. Here's all the religions, and some of them are going up. And a few are going down. Jewish, uh, Judaism, Buddhism, and Christianity is losing 66,000 people um, every 40 years. No, 66 million people, excuse me. 66 million people every 40 years are dropping off from Christianity. And it looks, again, like Christianity is a big bunch of losers. We're losing. What are we doing? Get off the ship before it sinks. Everyone else is. It's a losing battle. It's a losing game. This can't possibly turn around. That's how the media wants you to think. And this is honestly a trick of the devil. He makes every shadow big and scary and loud, doesn't he? But in the end of the day, it's just a shadow. It's not the reality. Because if you listen to the Word of God, the Word of God says point blank, I know who wins. I've seen the final score. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And the question is, who do you believe? Do you believe the world? Do you believe the media reports? Or do you believe the Word of God? And the declaration of victory from our Lord Jesus Christ. Because in this world, we will have trouble. He told us that. In this world, it will look bad at times. It will look like an uphill climb. It will look like a lot of people are giving up. I can see why that perspective would be there. You will have trouble in the world, Jesus told us in John 16. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Not I will. I have overcome the world. When I rose from the dead, you think that looked bleak? Three days of silence when Jesus is just dead lying in a tomb going, well, that was weird. We just gave our lives for three years following this guy. Now he's dead, staying dead, and this is incredibly awkward. We all have egg on our face. And then what happened three days later? Up from the grave he arose, overcoming victory over death. And Jesus says to us today, I have overcome the world, and guess what? You're with me. You're on my team. I'm your quarterback. It's simply, do you believe it or not? For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And again, that seems a little impossible. You go, my faith overcomes the world? I mean, our faith as a church, as Crossroads Church, overcomes the world? You remember that passage where it says, listen, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And you're going, well, that does look like my faith. That looks like my, oh boy, I can't draw here. That looks like my faith right there. It does. A mustard seed. Sometimes it feels that way. Like my faith is so small. My God is big, but my faith is small. And now John is telling me my faith will overcome the world. How do I understand that? Because my faith is so small and insignificant. And I often look at things from a negative perspective to which Jesus would say to us, yes, that's true. But it's not your faith that overcomes the world. It's the object of your faith that overcomes the world. Isn't it? And who is the object of our faith? The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who woke up from death three days later. Over here on the right is a mustard field, mustard seed. 
field that turns into a beautiful, wonderful, glorious crop one day. And one day that's going to happen, and we're all going to be part of it. We're all going to be part of this massive, glorious kingdom of God where our faith, which seems so small and insignificant, grew into a crop, and it grew into a crop with millions and billions and possibly trillions of other people who grew into the same crop. And the whole world and the whole heaven is blanketed in the righteousness of Christ. All because the object of our faith is so big and so beautiful and so profound and so victorious that your small faith on the big Jesus is what overcomes the world. Our final we wouldn't statement is we would not live as eternal victors. We wouldn't. The world doesn't. Unless we had faith that Jesus has already gained victory for us. And he has. And that's why we do this. We're not hoping to get victory. We're running and fighting and climbing from a place of victory. Because the score has already been determined. We're just now letting it play out. We would not live as victors unless we believed that truth. You remember the old song, the old hymn, Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. Do you believe that? Oh, victory in Jesus? Is there victory in Jesus? Is the world right? Are Christians losers? Are we going down with the ship? No, we're not. Because who's in the ship with us? Our captain, the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, dramatically, that ship is going to turn, and it's going to turn for good. And you want to be on that ship when it turns. For everyone who, is over, who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith, very quickly, what does that mean? What does it mean to overcome the world? I mean, are we starting a war here? I mean, what's going on here? The Christians on one side, everyone else on the other, grab your swords, and let's figure this thing out. No, please, don't. That's not what John is talking about. What does it mean to overcome the world? Before we close today, well, I'm going to run through five things I believe John is talking about. When you overcome the world, you live for things differently than the world does. Because the world has to chase riches and success and feelings, don't they? They have to. Why? Because they're insecure. They don't have eternal security. They don't know what's on the other side and they're a little terrified. So they've got to make this life the best it could possibly be. But when you're a child of God, you don't have to. Because your security is within the one who is alive today. And therefore you can live for holiness. Obedience and love. Because you're secure. And because that's what God wants. When you overcome the world, you don't live for the things the world does. You live for things that are better than that. Things that will last forever. Number two, overcoming the world looks like this. Not finding our joy and confidence purely from circumstances. Because that's a poor man's game. And we're not poor. We're heirs of the king of kings and when you have the king of kings on your team when you're fighting from a place of victory your joy and your peace do not result from the dips and the hills and the experiences of life they come from the steadiness of our reality that we have hope in Jesus Christ now I'm not saying that it's not hard every single Christian would say yeah that's a lot easier to say than to do but I've also experienced it. I've also experienced peace in the middle of a troubling storm. Have you? Ever? How? Because the world is foreign to that. The storm has to calm before the peace returns. 
So when you've experienced peace in the midst of the storm, you have something otherworldly. Number three, hope. Eternal hope that when we pass, when this life passes, and we will, and it will, it's not the last chapter. In fact, it's the beginning. It's a passageway to our eternal beginning with Jesus. So we don't have to sweep death under the rug, act like it's not there, act like we're never going to die, we're always going to live, and let's, let's just go as climb as many mountains as we can, experience as much joy as we can, live for all the euphoria of life as we can, because once it's over, it's over. That's what the world says, because they have no hope. But what if you did have hope? What if the best was yet to come? How would you live? I believe you'd live differently, and so does the Word of God. Number four, what does it mean to overcome the world? Our choices are fueled by love instead of self-promotion. Now, the world does love, but if you notice, the world likes to love when people are watching. They like to love when they can put it on social media because it's all about self-promotion, isn't it? It's all about how I look in man's eyes. But when you love for love's sake, for Christ's sake, you have something the world doesn't have. Because you don't need to be propped up because one day you're going to be exalted with your king. The world doesn't have to prop you up. The world can't prop you up. But the God of heaven will and can and has promised to. Number five, what does the overcoming the world look like? It looks like courage. It looks like courage. Again, not because of my faith, not because of how strong I am, but because my captain is right there next to me fighting against evil, against lies, against hatred. My Lord, my captain, is on the battlefield with me because he promised I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, I do enter the battle and I enter it with courage because I know I can't lose. And how would you fight if you knew you couldn't lose? Sure, you can be knocked around a bit and we will and we have and we will again. But when you're with Jesus, you can't lose because he can't lose. And that should give us courage to run at our enemies with the power of the Almighty God. What's the point of this lesson? It's very simple. There is eternal victory, and I hope you've experienced it, and I hope you're daily experiencing it. And if you don't believe in Jesus, that can stop today. You could stop being terrified of all things, chasing feelings and everything the world offers. You don't have to live that way. There's something better. Because there is eternal victory in Jesus and no one else. And if you believe that, and I believe many of you do, let us trust in him, love his church, and courageously obey him. Because that is the cry of victory over the devil. When we trust in Jesus, love his church, and courageously obey Jesus, we are secure beings in Jesus. And the whole world sees it. And most importantly, our enemy sees it. Will you rise up with courage, obey, and love your Lord and your church for his sake. That is all we, we secure victory. Let's bow in prayer and give this over to the Lord. Father, Father, you know my faith sometimes is small and I'm weak. You know, sometimes I feel like I shouldn't be leading any church. But Father, then you remind me that the calling upon my life is bigger than me. The God that we serve, the God that we trust in, the God that we worship is bigger than we ever could be. Father, remind us of that today. Again, 
that we can have courage, we can have love, we can have holiness, we can have victory in this life. And Father, not to just say it, but to live it. To do what this world has never seen before. Someone who has hope and courage, who is all in for Jesus. Father, I pray for the souls in this room who might not yet be all in for Jesus, that today would be the day they recognize He is the Christ. Father, we thank you for the victory we can have. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Why don't you please stand with us one more time?